Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Earlier this week, uh, Tom Keen, you asked me whether this was fun. And I sat there and thought, fun for who? And then I had lunch yesterday with two global macro guys. They and, bought? And, and literally, let me tell Wait, you. Whoa, 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 whoa. They bought it at Reddo, the keeper of the MX spy. They, they could not have been happier. They could not have been happier after global macro has been smacked around for like five, six, seven years. For these guys, they're hoping this is regime change. All of a sudden, it's a trader's market with a time horizon of like two minutes get in get out get back in again get out um james sweeney is this it is this a change or has global macro just got a break for a week i think this is a change i think we're going to have more volatile interest rates and exchange rates than we've had for a while i, I think we could have some new trends including uh, a, a downtrend in the dollar which which we think can continue and you can have real conversations about inflation and central banks like the BOJ and the ECB in yeah. terms of actually doing something in the in the years ahead. That's, so I think that's this, why these macro this is are This is a really important conversation for our listeners who have been conditioned by the buy-hold, by the ETF, buy-hold, passive strategies for the last decade. Do they need to start rethinking that? Because if the global macro guys are right, if we're shifting into a trader's market where active is really going to outperform, I wonder what our listeners need to do if they've been passive by hold for well, much of the last decade. That's right. Like two facts about the recent week. The, the U.S. equity market was the worst performing thing. And within the U.S. equity market, there wasn't a great deal of sector differentiation. Basically, everything went down. So yeah. to a stock picker. That's great. That's, I mean, basically to a macro guy or to a stock picker, this is the kind of thing that's going to create opportunities. Yeah. And, and you're seeing volumes and activity levels and interest in different markets pick up on this. James, John has had two words this week. One is whippy and the other is regime. And we're hearing this, John Farrell, a lot, aren't we? Regime change. People yeah, and a huge debate, it. Tom, as to whether we've actually yeah. got one or entering and, one. And in your world, this goes to James Bullard of St. Louis and his important short non-academic paper on how a Fed needs to work with regime change. Mm. Is Jay Powell going to enjoy a regime change? Well, so the, the regime change, actually, I, I wrote something on this last year, and I, I, I think the, the critical thing about the regime from a policy perspective is the inflation regime. So what is the inflation regime? So since, since the early to mid-90s in the developed market countries, you've had essentially trendless core inflation yeah. with very low volatility, with very low correlations to the previous year's growth, wages, credit, all right. these things that the precursors to inflation in, in the past, and this has been the this has been the inflation targeting central bank era, and and so you know you can't really find equations, math, econometrics that forecast next year's inflation on the basis of this year's unemployment rate, wages, well, these things this that, goes, that work. This, this critic, it used to work. It used to Could work. that change? That's okay. the regime change that's, that's the most important But the regime change thing. here is to go mathematically to jump conditions. How do our listeners adapt to a world of jump conditions. Well, there's there's you know there's different types of regimes. So the regime I just mentioned in terms of inflation is a is a longer term thing. And I don't think we had a big in inflation regime change at this point. It's just something worth speculating. But volatility in equity markets has regimes and volatility can jump 
from a low volatility regime where basically things aren't moving around that much, suddenly yeah. jump and then be much more volatile for several months, even a year at a, at a time. So that's regime is a little bit of a kind of over over glamorous word and something like that that can change <laughs> over a shorter period. I think a 25 year inflation regime is more regimey to me. But uh, but I, I think you know I think the clustering of low volatility and then the clustering of high volatility within a market is is of the essence at this moment. Maybe and we it should, looks um, like that might have just happened. Maybe we should use the word paradigm. Um, the current paradigm that we've been in for such a long time. The Fed reaction function has been pretty clear. Fed doesn't like vol. Yep. Fed doesn't like drawdowns. Fed doesn't like corrections. Um, something's changed because apparently the Fed doesn't care now. Well, I think the causality is running a little bit differently this way. I, I, I think what's happened recently is that the market has been pricing in more policy, and not just from the U.S., but the rest of the world. And, and you know, you, you know there's this big, uh, there's going to be this reduction of QE. The ECB is going to stop purchasing uh, later this year. The Fed is reducing its balance sheet. People are actually even talking about BOJ policy change over, over the next over the next few years. Uh, I think really what's happening is this is sinking into the right. market. And, and, and so the market has to adjust to those. James Sweeney, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With Credit Suisse, uh, very valuable uh, this morning. And Jeff Curry joins us from Goldman Sachs right now. Here's a number one question. Is commodities part of this party? We talk about bond correlations, FX correlation. Is there a commodity correlation to equity upset? Well, there was one exception, Jonathan, that was bulks. Iron ore and met coal. I, I missed that, Jeff. I missed up. that, Jeff. Yes, why 5%. Do you, why do you think that is? Because they are a pure EM play, and they didn't have as many investors in it. So I like to point out... The greater the trend, the more the investors that were in these markets, the bigger the sell-off. So and, like VIX is, would uh, be yeah, the, like the VIX, mother the of short it. sellers. In fact, but, I like to point out in commodities, we're old hat to this. We had it all last year. Exactly. You had it all last year. But Monday, you have to publish for Goldman Sachs. What will be the tone of that report to your clients? One in which most of this is driven by trend-following short sellers and systematic trading strategies, and that the underlying fundamentals are very much intact. The transmission mechanism between this weakness in trading and the fundamentals is through financial conditions. Yes, financial conditions have tightened, but they were at the highest ever or the best ever recorded last Monday before the sell-off. So has the underlying fundamental situation deteriorated enough for us to change our views? Absolutely not. In fact, there's not even one data point that you can point to that suggests that there's a something wrong fundamentally. Is this a period of deleveraging that's going to take a little bit more time to play out when you sit around the table with the committee at Goldman Sachs? Is that the view of, of you guys right now, Jeff? It, there's financial deleveraging happening, but there's not fundamental deleveraging happening. Fundamentally, the, 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 the market's still relevering. So, you know, we look at, you know, commodity prices, you still have very high commodity prices. You know, you still have Brent at $64 a barrel. Um, you have iron ore at $77.50. You have copper nearly at $7,000. So, yes, we've seen a 5.2% correction in um, commodities altogether, but that's not the end of the world. Uh, so, you know, we look at the underlying fundamentals, relevering on the demand side. In fact, that's the core of our three R's. Reflation leads to relevering. Relevering le re leads to reconvergence of global growth, and it cycles back over. That story has not changed. So the equity market pain, you think it can remain contained to the equity market? 
So so far, it, it appears to be the case because, again, the underlying <clears throat> fundamental story, even on the equities, is still rock solid. Yeah, and this is critical, John. I, I was so busy today, folks. I didn't have the chart out on TV. You'll see it first on Bloomberg Radio, which puts in perspective the Dow of where it is versus 1987 and 1929. You mentioned the CTAs, the commodity traders within alternative investments, and they're all trend-based. Good morning, Monroe Trout. Good morning, John Henry, and everybody else that invented this act. We're just back to support on too many charts, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Exactly. To be clear, Jeff Curry, we haven't broken support thing after thing after right. thing three. Right. A absolutely. Which just goes to <clears throat> the point that the bigger the upward trend, the, the bigger the sell-off has been because you're just bringing yourself back into a correction where you're finding these normal support levels. Have they cleared markets? And this is something that John Farrow would ask. Do we have one-way bets on live cattle? Do we have one-way bets on copper? Do we have one-way bets on Brent crude right now? Is the market stacked or is it flat, ready to go? At this point, you've cleaned up a lot of the markets, particularly in oil in the last, and that was the one that was the longest. In fact, if you ask somebody to tell a bear story on oil two weeks ago, it was positioning. Now the positioning has been cleaned up, which again reinforces the fundamental story going forward. Jeff, I want to talk to the economist in you, not just the market participant. Um, a big discussion of Bloomberg surveillance throughout the whole of this week has been whether we're breaking into a new regime, whether this is regime change. Is it for you? Is that what this is, this price action, a symptom of the beginning of a regime change? I, I'd argue we had the regime change last year. And so in terms of thinking about, you know, the underlying fundamental story that, that came out of last year is, you know, you, you see the, the, the correlation between oil and the dollar resurfacing a lot of, you yeah. know, what, you know, the cross asset correlation you're referring to, the linchpin to that really is the dollar. So from our perspective, that regime change, it happened last year. Um, we're in it, and then part of it reinforces that bullish story. We've seen what happens when you have this whole three R's, reflation, re-leveraging, and reconvergence, um, and the linchpin that keeps the cycle going and creating that upward pressure in commodity prices yeah. really is the dollar. Let's be clear here, though. The reflation story, uh, this is reminiscent of this time last year. Yes, I mean, a lot is. of people very bullish on inflation and a lot of money made over the preceding months by fading the reflation trade. Why is this time different? It isn't. And as I, you know, if you look at the, this, this story, it really began in April 2016, the reflation story. And, you know, as my boss likes to point out, if you go back to the 1960s, the reflation story took, it started in 1962. It didn't finish until 1978. Um, it takes a while for these, for the fundamentals to create these inflationary pressures. It doesn't, fundamental markets are not like financial markets. They just don't happen overnight. Um, you know, it, it takes years for yeah. you to get these pressures to, to develop. So talk to me about the transmission. We've got the market pain. It's financial market pain. Let's be clear about that. It's not economic pain yet. Um, when do you start to see it bleed into the economy, if at all? Are there any concerns? And if there, are, if there is a transmission mechanism, what have you got your eye on? What is it? It's, it's the financial conditions that the financial markets create. And you know you have you have a drop in equity prices that creates a drop in wealth. You have rising interest rates, is with which was what you see with the ten-year treasury. But even there, there's you look at the rise in you know interest rates. What you're still two point eight two versus two point seven seven. Can so. we can we talk about non-crisis stuff? The VIX in a stick, uh, futures negative five, Dow futures negative ninety six. How's oil demand? 
spectacular. That's the thing is if you look at all of these markets, demand is rock solid across, not only across geography, but right. across product. So I'm talking to Rio Tinto, CEO yesterday. He's taking a victory lap and allocating financial. And I know you've got people at Goldman follow individual stocks. You don't want to comment on that. I get that. But is the industry going to make the same mistakes or are they like the airline business where they finally wised up? This time, the financial participants won't let them make the same mistakes. Yep. And the key here is we had a theme that we talked about in the late 90s and early 2000s it's called Revenge of the Old Economy. It's the same dynamic here. The new economy, the fangs, the bats are, are printing great financial numbers. Capital is being redirected towards the new economy at the expense of the old economy. And I know I know Jean-Sebastien Jacques at Rio Tinto very, very well. And the shift after Walsh left Rio was to get away from the volume story and get to value. They got punished by their investors for what they did over the last 10 years, Tom. And I think there's a real discipline amongst the private companies, at least, to respond in the way they yeah, have but... done, to stay disciplined. I think the key question, it's not in iron ore. It's not in copper. It's not these big companies, Rio Tinto, BHP, Billiton. It's whether the governments of OPEC can remain disciplined. It's whether Saudi Arabia can remain disciplined. It's whether some of these big OPEC participants sure. that have capped volume can remain disciplined with crude getting back towards 70, Jeff. Is it, when you talk commodities and you talk iron ore and copper, with a British accent, it sounds better, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does. <laughs> it, does. <laughs> it does. I mean, it it's does. like the London metals market. Kind <laughs> aluminium. Of, yeah, aluminium, exactly. But to John's important question, have they learned the lessons or is, or is the Middle East going to make the same lessons again, uh, failures again in oil? But, but even you take take Saudi Arabia, they're focused on their, their vision 2030, which is diversification across the economy. They need to make investments in other things. And I guess it's the point here is the attractiveness of the rest of the world outside of commodities is much better this time around than it was a decade ago. Now, Jeff Curry, thank you so much. I get some sleep this weekend. After Never enough time global. with Jeff Curry. That's true. I, I always feel that That's way. Good. Nobody knows the minutia of how you actually spend it. Like John Hudak at Brookings Institution, uh, he has made a cottage industry of what you do with the billions and trillions. John, wonderful to have you with us. What's different now in how a given department spends, a given marble building in Washington, how they spend the next marginal new billion? Well, these uh, agencies have a couple of choices. They can either continue to fund the existing programs that they have <clears throat> under their authorization, or where they have discretion, they can start to build out new programs. And I think there will be some agencies that are going to want to do that under the new uh, spending provisions of the bill that was passed uh, this morning. At the same time, though, a lot of agencies have right. had hiring troubles. And hiring people back just to man these agencies is something I think you're going to see a lot of agencies doing out of the gate. To review, President Obama was, am I right, fiscally prudent on discretionary spending? What portion of what was wrought overnight is, you know, bipartisan catch-up with the frugality that we've had over the last X number of years? So, so you're right. We had sort of two different Barack Obamas. We had Barack Obama early on, right after the uh, recession began, where he passed the stimulus bill. And that wasn't necessarily fiscally prudent, although I think it was economically prudent at the time. And then later on, under Republican pressure from Congress, 
you had a more uh, fiscally frugal President Obama. But now what we're seeing is the Congress pass what is a massive increase in spending, or rather the authorization for a massive increase in spending, which is a, more than a third of the size of the stimulus that many of these same Republicans have railed against for years. How do we define fiscal responsibility, John, uh, in 2018? Senator, Senator well, Rand Paul said, a- tweeted um, six hours ago, make no mistake, I will always stand up for fiscal responsibility. What does he mean? Well, I'll say, I think if you're a member of Congress, you define fiscal responsibility by whatever you happen to vote for that day. But I think what we're seeing right now is a Congress that uh, likes catchphrases, but when it comes down to the actual business of governing, the actual business of funding our government, uh, there's a very effective way to build bipartisan support, and that is not to be fiscally prudent. Uh, And so you see Republicans who are screaming about deficits voting twice now in the past couple of months to expand deficits in a massive way, first through the tax bill and second through this budget deal. So important question for me, John. It doesn't seem to me that it matters what your political colours are. Once you're in power, your fiscal responsibility dissipates rather quickly. We now have the Democrats out of power, and I wonder whether they inherit the position of the Republicans before them, where they also become the fiscal responsible ones, the deficit hawks. Now, if they do, one, that's the first question, if they do. The second question is whether that actually resonates with the electorate at all. Well, Jonathan, there's certainly some, uh, there's certainly a lot of truth to that, rather, that uh, depending on whether you're in power helps determine how fiscally responsible you are. When Democrats are in power, they don't care that much about deficits and debt. When they're out of power and Republicans are trying to spend money, then all of a sudden they become fiscal hawks. And so, yeah, the, the system ends up being turned upside down essentially depending on uh, who is in power. But it's important to note that there are a lot of fiscally responsible individuals who did vote against the legislation this morning on both sides of the aisle. But, John, the second part of the question, uh, for a fiscal conservative, for a conservative, being a fiscal hawk resonates with most of your electorate, your core electorate. So if you're a Republican and you're a deficit hawk and you're out of power, you know that will win you votes. If you're a Democrat, can you make the same argument? Uh, So you can't make the same argument with your base if you're a Democrat. But what I think Democrats are trying to do in the next 10 months is to start to appeal to moderate voters, independent voters. And a lot of independent voters, they might be liberal on social issues, but a lot of them are fiscal hawks. And so I think it's reaching out to them. Well, John Farrell doesn't understand he just stumbled into Democratic Party history here, whether it's John Fitzgerald Kennedy or Scoop Jackson, et cetera, et cetera. I believe I can identify former fiscally responsible Democrats. Are they out there or does the party have to invent them? Well, in a lot of ways, the party has to invent them. There are a lot of uh, Democrats now who don't look like uh, those same figures who you just mentioned. There aren't a lot of Kennedy Democrats left in Congress, even though we still have a Kennedy left in Congress. You really see a party that is committed to expanding social programming and not thinking about necessarily the long-term fiscal health of the nation. Very good. Uh, John Hudick, thank you for the quick briefing here on the fiscal policy. We're going to do much more on this in the coming days, folks.
forward. Right now, a romantic conversation with Dennis Gartman. Uh, people, I got a lot of emails. Oh, Gartman's going to be on. It's very important. Dennis, we spoke to one Douglas Cass of Florida earlier today. He is 80% in cash and has applied long trades off the catharsis yesterday. Did you go long yesterday? I'm actually short, have been short for the past two or three weeks, and I'm probably going to get just a tiny little bit shorter. I own a few things. I own yeah. some ball bearings manufacturers. I own a bank here in, in southern Virginia. But on balance with derivatives, I'm, I'm a little bit net short okay. and probably going to stay that way. We're, I got eight questions. John Farrow has 12 questions, but we're going to go to a clinic here right now. What you heard Mr. Gartman say, folks, is exceptionally important. You're in a trade. The trade is successful and you add more to the trade. That's called N.A. Martingale theory. Explain yep. to me why you're adding more shorts now if you're looking uh, pretty. Well, I think that the simplest thing to understand about trading is, is this. In life and in trading, the best rule to follow is do more of that which is working and less of that which is not. Why do you buy a stock at 20 and buy more at 15 and buy more at 10 when the market is telling you you're wrong? That's just illogical. If you bought a stock at 20 and it goes to 30, you should be buying more because the market is telling you that you're right. For whatever reason, you're right. So do more of that which is working. Do less of that which is not. If you do that in life, if you, if you take flowers to your girlfriend more often, you're probably going to get luckier oh, on a more see, consistent you basis. You see how Gartman gets a Valentine's Dennis, Day Dennis in there? Dennis is all romantic. You'd think he was talking to Mrs. Keene right I, I now. think he was talking to Mrs. Keene whilst you I go out. I was talking to my lovely bride. Were you? Oh, Were, I think brother. when Tom takes out vet bills, some flowers are arriving for Mrs. Keene <laughs> from Dennis Gartman. Um, Dennis, you said you're sure. Okay, I, I want an idea. Just give me, sort of lift the lid on the options market at the moment and tell me how expensive downside protection has got on the S&P 500. Well, if you're using options, it's gotten ridiculously overexpensive. There are other cheaper methodologies. There's futures that don't get more expensive. There's no, they, they, they fall, but they don't go in value higher than an option does. There are derivatives that, that are, I think, reasonably usable. Um, I, I would avoid at this point the options market just because of the expansion in premiums. So talk to me about the best, the best way of expressing that trade at the moment, Dennis. What is it? Uh, the easiest way and the best way and the cleanest way is to use the, the S&P futures. And that's that, no question about that. The second best way is to use the SDS, which is a double uh, ETF. And, and there are some problems with the double ETFs, but the cleanest and best way is to use the S&P futures. I think a big topic of conversation for us on this program, Dennis, through the week is how elevated volatility has remained. And yes. if you look at the term structure of volatility, the VIX curve, so to speak, incredibly yes. inverted as well. Are you looking for that to normalize anytime soon? It will normalize probably in the next month or two. When you have this kind of fever that has broken uh, upon the markets, it takes a while for those sorts of exogenous circumstances to, to, to fix themselves. Will, will the market go back? Will the VIX go back to a contango? Of course. Is it going to do it today? I doubt that. At this point, Dennis, do you see this as a technical correction or something more fundamental that we need to start listening to? All, all bear markets begin as technical corrections. Let's, yeah. let's understand that first of all. And they only become bear markets after they've fallen, what, 10, 15, 20 percent, and they get everybody's attention. So let's call this for right now a correction. But I fear, honestly, I fear that something worse is ahead. This is really important, folks. Mr. Gartman disagreeing with others like Mr. Cass is short uh, this market on a trading basis. The technical construction of the last six or seven days agrees with you, uh, Dennis Gartman. For those that want to be brave and step in there, explain the resistance that exists 
on the Dow or S&P chart right now? Oh, there's there's just so many things that have happened. One of the yeah, it, this is going to be a little esoteric, Tom. But take a look at what at the at the cross between the euro between the British pound sterling and the Japanese yen. Sterling has been gaining upon the Japanese yen for months and months and months, and in fact for 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 years since the since the excitement over Brexit uh, had sent the, the British pound sterling down sharply. In the course of the past two years, however, as the stock markets of the world have risen, that spread sterling has gained upon yen. Yesterday, that spread broke. Yesterday, any trend line that you drew broke. The, that, when correlations such as those begin to falter and, and, and fall apart, you have to pay attention. I know that's right. a bit esoteric, but some, there right. are things that are falling apart within the interior of the market that I find dismaying. Okay, Dennis Gartman, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.